This is a download from Ormskirk Christadelphians of one of our Sunday afternoon talks. A video of the talk is also available along with more downloads on our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk. If you'd like to join us in person, our talks take place at our meeting room on Moorgate in Ormskirk every Sunday at 1.45pm. We hope you enjoy the talk. I think possibly one of the most fundamental views um, held by us as Christadelphians is the account of creation that we find in the biblical record of Genesis. And perhaps this is ridiculed by those who would have us believe in the theory of evolution. Um, But, however, we do stand firmly behind the idea that the earth was created in six days and by an all-powerful being whom the Bible actually describes to us and introduces us to as the God of Israel. And really implicit, therefore, in this statement, we would believe that the the Bible is the inspired word of God, within which we find the answers to the meaning for our lives and God's purpose, his overall purpose with the whole world. And really, then, the title Forbidden Fruit speaks to us of the story recorded in Genesis, um, of the way that man failed before God in the very beginning, Um, And more positively, the way that God's purpose would unfold over time and still continues to unfold in the times that we live now. It explains how God would give man a choice of eternal life should we choose to believe in him and his son. So firstly then, as, as we look at this account in Genesis... I want to quickly go over the basics of the story, just so we all understand what what Genesis 3 is talking about. And the way, and really earlier as well, how the Bible really begins and what God tells us in the first three chapters of the Bible. So, I suppose, as we've mentioned already, the first most important thing is that the account of creation um, details to us that God created the earth in six days. And he rested on the seventh. So um, if you read through Genesis 1 and 2, it mentions the first, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, and the sixth day, all of which God created different things. And then on the seventh day, we're told in chapter 2 that God rested. And then we're given the creation of man in slightly more detail in chapter 2. So we know that man was created on the sixth day. However, in chapter 2, we then, it then goes back and we're given more detail about this in chapter 2. And then in chapter 2 also, Adam is given authority to name the animals and to look after a place which is called the Garden of Eden. This is, um, the Bible calls it that in verse um, verse 8 of chapter 2. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And so man was put in, in this place, in the Garden of Eden, it's called. And... Adam and Eve were given one instruction by God in chapter 2 and verse 16. It says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge and good and e- of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. They they were given one commandment, and that was that of all the trees in the garden, they were only they were allowed to eat any of them apart from this one, the tree of knowledge and good and the tree of knowledge of good and of evil, it's called. Um, and this really is then where the serpent comes in, in chapter three, because he then directs the mind of Eve to question whether or not what God said was really the case. So, in verse in chapter three and verse one, he says, 
Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, lest, and neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And then the serpent says um, to the woman, Ye shall not surely die. So he, he contradicts the idea which God has told Adam and Eve in the first place. And subsequent to this, Adam and Eve then go on to do exactly this. They, uh, Eve, at first, takes the fruit and ignores the commandment of God and then encourages Adam to do exactly the same thing. And one interesting point is that at the same time, uh, just after they've taken the fruit, Adam and Eve, the record points out, it goes to great lengths, in fact, to point out to us that Adam and Eve realised at this point in verse 7 they realised that they were naked and then they sewed fig leaves together and made aprons and again I draw your attention to the fact that the record really there's, there's no particular it's almost like a random comment added in at this stage but this, is, this becomes quite important in the record of creation or of this story and then after this God is then described to be walking in the garden from which Adam and Eve then hide themselves. And the ultimate result of this is that God curses Adam and Eve and the serpent. And we read of that in verse 11 onwards, or verse 10 onwards, sorry. And then after this, perhaps again slightly unusually, our attention, our attention is drawn to the fact that God then provides a sufficient covering for both Adam and Eve by giving them um, coats made of skins. And that's further on, that's in verse 21. And to Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. And then finally, we read towards the end of the chapter that the two are expelled from the Garden of Eden and not allowed to live there anymore. And there's um, cherubim, they're called, or like fiery ones placed in the way to stop them coming back into the Garden of Eden. So taking a step back then why 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 is this account recorded for us like this why do we have so much detail of this account in the bible why does god choose to tell us this particularly and the answer is that this becomes the foundation for the whole of the bible message the consistency found throughout the whole of scripture begins right here in the Garden of Eden. You know, I mean, we, you might have heard before the idea that the Bible is written by over, 20, over 40 different authors, and yet the, the message is consistent all the way through. And this, this is the basis for God's message of salvation for mankind. It promises that a man would come who would defeat the power of sin for mankind and enable them to live forever in the kingdom of God, and hopefully we'll seek to prove these points from Genesis and these are the ideas now then that we want to explore, that the foundation of the gospel message and the essential knowledge that we need to become part of the promises that God has made to man. So the first thing to think about then with this chapter and the first thing that God I think really details to us is the way that sin entered the world. Because the main problem, this is the main thing that, that comes out of the, the record of the Garden of Eden. And why is it? that God allowed such a thing as sin 
in his creation, when initially we're told his creation, chapter 1, we're told it was very good. And if you just quickly turn over to Romans 6, we read about what, what sin really means in, term, in practice, in real life. Um, Romans 6, this is now in the New Testament, and just after the Gospels, and it's one of the letters written by Paul. Romans 6, and just one verse. Uh, verse 23. Romans 6, verse 23, we, we read, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And for now, we just want to focus on the first bit of that statement, which is to say that the idea that someone can disobey God separates him from God. And if there was no sin then as this verse says, there would be no death because the wages of sin is death. So why, if, if there was no sin, then God wouldn't need to have a plan of salvation for the earth. We wouldn't need to be saved from it because there'd be no death, there'd be no sin. And this is why in the Bible, sin is portrayed as, as the ultimate problem that will be resolved when Christ returns to the earth. So again, we ask the same question. Well, how, how did sin enter the world? And why, why did God allow this? And the answer is very straightforward in terms of the way scripture presents this to us. If you just flick back a few pages in Romans to Romans 5, we read in verse 12, Romans 5 and verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin... So death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So, I mean, the Bible is, is absolutely clear. And I suppose when, when we think about it, it's, it's a perfectly obvious thing to say, isn't it? That the reason why sin is in the world, the reason why we have a problem, is because man sinned. Man disobeyed God's commandments. He broke the law which God had set down in the Garden of Eden. Which, and this is inherently what we mean when we use the term sin. It's to fall short of the mark which God has set or to break his, his laws or his commandments. And so let's just take a step back then. What, what, are we, what are we really saying? So in the Garden of Eden, in the creation record, God describes creation as, as very good. This is, this is what God's creation was. But then through the failure of mankind, sin became a part of man's existence, and therefore so did death. And by quickly looking at the way the serpent thought, I, I think we can probably confirm that this, the problem of sin uh, entered by man. If you just come back to Genesis again. Because it's, it's perhaps an odd, thing, an odd thing to say, but I think in, in the Genesis record, the serpent is often sort of perceived as, as the one who is evil. In, in the record, which in, in terms of the symbol he is, because he's the one who cause, causes Adam to sin. But in actual fact, the serpent was part of the creation which God called very good. And as, as a result, the serpent was only making an observation. If, if you look at verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. The, the, what's being said here is that rather than the serpent being like evil in God's sight, which he couldn't be because he was part of God's creation, which was very good. He was more making a statement from which man then proceeded to fall by. 
And so, again, this is all adding up to the idea, the fundamental idea that sin is in the world because of man's failure to obey God's commandments. And so this, then, is where God's work, I mean, really began, after creation even, because he had given man everything, and yet men had failed to live up to the standards of God, and so sin and death entered the world. And this is what the gospel message is. This is the way that God has intervened in the cycle of sin and death to save man while maintaining his own righteousness. That is God's righteousness. Because he couldn't just forgive man for the sin that he committed straight on the spot because then God would be unjust. That wouldn't be, that wouldn't be a fair thing for him to do because that would just be ignoring the fact that man had sinned. He, he had to give people what they deserved. However, while still saving them, which is what his plan is all about. And so then, back to the record in Genesis 3. What were the results of sin? What happened after Adam and Eve took the fruit? Well, I think at least we can say that two things changed at this point. And the first thing is the idea of a mental change. Because, do you remember we talked about um, Adam and Eve being naked? They realised, as soon as they'd eaten the fruit, that they were naked. Let's just read that again in verse 6, um, in verse 7. Actually, at the end of verse 6 says, she gave also, Eve gave also to her husband, that's the fruit, and they did eat. And then it says, the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked. It's only after that they'd disobeyed God's commandment that they realised that they were naked. It's only after this point that they then choose to cover themselves with fig leaves. And really this outlines to us that the way that man thought after he sinned changed. Jeremiah 17, no need to turn there, but Jeremiah 17 tells us that the, the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And this is what happened after man sinned. This is how man became he had a, a bias, a proneness to sin in his nature, in the way that a man is. And this is the way that we all are now. We have a bias. We, we, we lean towards the idea of sin as opposed to the things which God says. And then the second idea of what changed is also a physical change. Just come later on in chapter 3 to the curses which God gives. Uh, chapter 3 and verse 19 So God says to Adam, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. From this point onwards then, man became a dying creature. The nature that he had, or almost like the physiological makeup of mankind, was that he, it was fundamentally changed now. He was no longer very good in God's sight. He's now a dying creature that would eventually go back to the dust. He was in need of God's help. And actually, perhaps at this point, it's a good idea to just take a, to take a step back from the, the record in Genesis 3 and think about death. Because Bible teaching about death is, is very straightforward and again is laid out at the very start of, of Scripture, even in Genesis 3. And just look at what we're told in verse 19 about death. In the sweat of thy face shall they eat bread... Till thou return unto the ground. And that's obviously talking about death. It says, For dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. 
So the point about death is that it's a returning to the dust. A man would grow older and older and older, and then he would die. And it's stating the, the obvious, I suppose, but perhaps, at least in some ways, general Christianity, uh, people don't like to grasp this idea, but when we die, we, we turn to dust. You know, it's, it's very simple. This is what Genesis says. You know, it's when, when someone dies, they, they, they no longer have consciousness. They cease to be. They are, they are dust. This is the way that the Bible describes it. And actually, this message is consistent all the way throughout Scripture. If you quickly come to Ecclesiastes, so this is a bit later on in the Old Testament. Um, if you find Psalms, which is a big book in about the centre, and then carry on slightly, you'll come to Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes. And again, it's just one verse. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 5 says, For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything, neither have they any more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. This is the message of the Bible, that when someone dies, they no longer have any more consciousness. There's no immortal soul, so to speak. A man, a man will die and that's, that's the end of the story, as far as outside of God's promises is concerned. The Bible actually describes resurrection as the hope for mankind. But as far as death is concerned, that is that man ceases to be outside of death. There's no consciousness after death. So let's go back then to Genesis with this in mind. To Genesis 3 again. And I suppose up, up until this point we've been fairly negative in the sense that we've said that sin entered the world by man disobeying God and that man was then changed in, in a bad way. He became a dying creature and with a proneness to sin. And we've defined what death actually is, which is a negative thing. It's, it's a ceasing of consciousness. You know, humans return to the dust and decompose as a direct result of sin, we've said, from, if, from Romans 6. So let's change the dynamic a bit and focus on the more positive ideas in the record. And the, really, this, this is the, the amazing part of the, of the story of Genesis 3. So we're going to come to a section, really, of... This is the point at which God speaks to Adam and Eve. And these are, these are the curses, God calls them. But it's it really involved in this is, is the promise of, um, of Christ. And perhaps, I don't know, in, in Christadelphia at least, we call this the covenant in Eden. And it's just useful to know because when we talk about covenants, we'd say that there were three main covenants, which is the covenant in Eden, and then the covenant to Abraham, and then the covenant to David. So this is the first of the three that we're really looking at tonight. And again, I'm sure that the other, the other two are dealt from um, here at other times. So Genesis 3 then and verse 14. And this is what God says to the serpent. He says, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field, and upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And really, I think this, this curse is very specific to the serpent, but it's the next verse that we're really interested in which, which reads and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel so what, what, what does this verse mean I, I, at first it seems, it seems a little bit cryptic I suppose there's, there's a woman and then there's a serpent and then there's the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent and there's an enmity, there's a continual conflict, so to speak, between the two parties, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. 
and the outcome of, of the conflict is, is really extremely specific, extraordinarily so in, like, for, for the rest of the record. If you have a look, uh, end of verse 15, it shall bruise thy head, as in the seed of the woman will bruise the, seed, the head of the seed of the serpent, and thou, the serpent, shall bruise the, his heel. So the seed of the serpent would be bruised in his head, whereas the seed of the woman would be bruised on his heel. And well, what, what, does, what does all that mean then? How, how, how are we supposed to read this? Well, I suppose if we were to say like very, very literally, maybe the answer is simple, that serpents always bite people, and that's a bad thing, and it's deadly. But you see, actually, the, the results of what, what's being said here is a lot more wide-ranging than this. And the language, really, the nature of the language behind these ideas are way too specific for it just to mean that. There's got to be another, um, a deeper meaning involved in these verses. So let's think about this in a slightly more figurative sense then. So the serpent, if we were to take the serpent in the record of the Garden of Eden, what, what does he really stand for? Because he, he is the one who initially plants the seeds of temptation in Eve's mind in the first place. And so he, he comes to represent the idea of the thinking of the flesh, of this, of this proneness to sin, which we talked about before. Or really, I suppose, the source of sin in, in each one of us. Because this is precisely where sin comes from when we think about it. It's the thinking. It's our own thinking. This is, this is where sin comes from. And Jesus picks up this idea of the serpent being figurative of sin when he calls the Pharisees a generation of vipers in the New Testament. It's an idea that, which is used uh, quite a lot through scripture. So if that's the serpent, what would his seed be then? Well, I would suggest that this is a class of people who think in the same way that the serpent did. If it's his seed, it, they all come from the same idea. The serpent changed the truth of God into a lie. He said that thou shalt not surely die in, in, in direct opposition to what God had said, which was that they would. And so there are a few ideas for the seed of the serpent, but then now for the seed of the woman, because there's enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And therefore, this means that the seed of the, the woman would be on the opposite side. It's the opposite idea to that of the serpent. And so this is the class of people who would express the truth, as Eve did initially before the serpent deceived her. So why then? Why the language of bruising? And why would the serpent's head be bruised and the woman's heel? Well, I would suggest that really this is it's, it's actually it's quite a, a like a pictorial image of you know of like a, a woman and, and a and a serpent because if you were to bruise a serpent's head, what we're saying is that a serpent's down there and then you tread on it and you like crush its skull. It's it's got the idea of like a fatal wound. You know, if you if you stamp on something's head on a serpent's head, that's that's the end of the serpent as far as that's concerned and the idea of being bitten on the heel is that that's that's more of a temporary wound which is sustained in doing so if the two were to have a fight say and, and you know the serpent got bruised on the head and you got bruised on the heel the serpent dies and the woman the seed of the woman sustains a temporary wound and so perhaps then this prophet this prophecy or this promise is more specific than just saying um, that the seed of the woman is a class of people who believe, who um, express the truth of God. It's more specific to one person who embodied the 
thinking of God, his, whose thinking was always in line with that of God. And I think you probably know where we're coming on to in the sense that this is Christ. Because it was Christ who ultimately destroyed the seed of the serpent on the cross in his death. And actually, just come with me to Hebrews. So this is a book in the New Testament. Uh, and again, it's, it's one of the epistles, later than Romans, right towards the end of your Bible. And Hebrews in chapter 2. Hebrews 2. And verse 14. And what, what we read here is, it's a description of what Christ did when he died. And this fits in with, with what we read about the, seed of this, uh, about the promise in Genesis 3 and verse 15. So Hebrews 2 and verse 14 we read, For, the child, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise, this is Christ, Christ also himself likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death that is the devil so the the ultimate we don't need to go into the detail of this verse the ultimate point about this verse is that Christ destroyed what Hebrews terms as the devil and we know from other parts of scripture without going into it tonight that when we talk about the devil what we mean is is human thinking the desires or temptations that all humans have that even Christ had this is the enmity from Genesis 3 verse 15 which is in each one of us and Christ was able to destroy this by sacrificing himself on the cross which is what Genesis 3:15 is talking about so let's summarize this again then the enmity between the two seeds in, Gen- in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, came to a climax in Christ when he put his own nature to death on the cross. So what, what does that mean then for us? How, how does this work? This, this is the plan that God promised Adam and Eve all the way back in creation, that the seed would come who would destroy the power of sin in a sacrifice. This was the way that God would save the whole of mankind while still maintaining his own righteousness. And this means something for us as well. If you come to 1 Corinthians, we can see the message behind it for us. So this is back a little bit. Um, It's back from Hebrews, but not as far back as Romans, if that helps. So 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. For since by man came death, that's by Adam came death, so also by man, that's Christ, came the resurrection of the dead. And then for as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. And we as just normal human beings are in Adam because we all die you know we we have the same curses that Adam had so in the same way we can become part of Christ we can become in Christ um, and associate really with the sacrifice of Christ with his victory over the serpent so and this um, this 
We can associate with this victory through baptism, we're told, elsewhere. And actually, for reference, that would be Romans 6 particularly. Romans 5 and 6, you'd want to read for that. We don't have time to look at that this evening. But we we can become in Christ by baptism into his name. So that as Christ was raised from the dead, so we also can have a hope of eternal life when Christ returns to the earth. And all of those who have died in Christ will be raised. And this really is the hope that Genesis 3 verse 15 is talking about. And it's quite a start to the Bible, really. And the rest of the Bible continues in the same way. And the same problem is dealt with. And that, is, that becomes the, the issue of Scripture. And eventually, as we've said, it is fulfilled. And the work is completed in Jesus Christ, whom we can be associated with through baptism. We hope you enjoyed that talk. For more downloads, videos, information about what we believe and details of our meeting times, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk.